So it's Luke chapter 1, starting to read at verse 39. It's Mary's visit to Elizabeth. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promise to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of a humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Thanks very much, Val. Um, Good to see you all this morning. Uh, Let's pray as we come to the Lord's Word together. Let's pray. Lord God, it says in your word, for no word from God will ever fail. And we pray this morning that there would be the case for us that we would believe in that promise. We pray that we would see you in all your glory, that we would trust in you and that you would fill us with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is it that makes your life um, joyful? What are the moments or the, uh, the events um, in your life that have brought you great joy as you look back on them? And how have you expressed that joy? I've got a few examples here of uh, uh, people expressing their joy as something that has uh, happened to them, uh, expressing it in different ways, uh, some more exuberant than others, different uh, uh, reasons to express joy as well. Some of you may be able to relate to them. Um, others, I'm sure, can share in their joy. Well, this morning we're looking at uh, Mary's famous um, song called The Magnificat. And what comes out of her song is an expression of real joy. Mary can't help herself. She needs to express her joy. And singing is a common way which God gives us to express our emotions, doesn't he? Uh, Whether it's uh, emotions of great joy or emotions of sadness in some cases. But where does Mary get her joy from? It's not just from a short-lived moment. It's not the excitement of planning for her her wedding day, which is coming up. 
and which actually may not now happen, given what has happened to her. It doesn't even come from the fact that she's been chosen to bear the Son of God. It comes from trusting that God will do what he says he will do. It comes from seeing God in all his glory. She's able to sing, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. But before we look at these amazing two verses in more detail, let's just remind ourselves of um, the story so far, how we got to this particular point. You may remember back in chapter 1, verse 15, if you want to flick back a page, um, the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that his wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to a son, who they will call John. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Last week we looked at how Gabriel tells Mary she is to be the mother of Jesus. And Mary says, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the answer comes, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overpower you, overshadow you. And he gives a further reassurance by explaining that her relative Elizabeth is going to have a baby even though she's past childbearing age. And then finishes by saying, for no word from God will ever fail. And having received that answer, Mary demonstrates amazing trust in that word. As she says back in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Well, we pick up the story in our passage this morning in verse 39. With Mary rushing excitedly to, to Judea to visit Elizabeth to show her good news, but also probably just to check out whether what the angel said was actually true. And sure enough, Elizabeth is pregnant. And we're told that as Mary arrived, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This happened just as God's messenger said it would. And as Mary believed it would. And Elizabeth um, exclaims in verse 35, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. Last week we were given the promise, no word from God will ever fail. And today we're told that as we believe that promise, we will receive great blessing and great joy. So let's have a look at Mary's song. The reason this song is commonly known as the Magnificat is because uh, that is the first word um, of the song in Latin, which has been translated as magnifies, in some translations glorifies, in this translation, my soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. To magnify, to glorify, is quite hard to um, define in the context of God. But it means something like to acknowledge God for who he is, to show God in all his greatness. I don't know about you, but when I think of magnify, I usually think about um, putting a tiny little creature under a magnifying glass and um, making them appear uh, bigger than they really are. Anyone know what this uh, little critter is? This is a house dust mite, magnified quite a few times. Pretty horrible to think that this is um, crawling around your mattress or your pillow. Um, but when we magnify God, we're not making him bigger than he really is. 
We are magnifying him to the size he really is. Because our finite human brains cannot fully comprehend the magnitude of God, what it means for God to be omnipotent, um, omnipresent, eternal. And so we sort of reduce him to something we can comprehend down to our size. To magnify him is to see him closer to how he really is. So it's more like um, um, this sort of situation here. I don't know whether you recognize these uh, stars at the top here. Anybody know what that constellation is? They're the Pleiades. Now, they just appear just some dots in the sky, don't we? Now, if you magnify them a little bit, this is what you see. And you see a whole load of other stars around them, don't you? Still not the size that they really are, but you've understood a bit more of the magnitude of those stars. We won't fully appreciate the glory of God in this life, but we can seek to magnify him and to demonstrate his greatness. We do that in the words we use to pray and to sing, uh, to worship God for all he's done for us. But how does a soul glorify or magnify God? Because that's what it says here. Well, it's when in our inner beings we become more aware and convicted of the greatness, the holiness, the mercy of God. And the natural response to that is joy. The more we see, the more we know God, the more we are filled with joy. And that joy is a deep-rooted contentment that is is different from a short-lived feeling of happiness when we've won Wimbledon, when we've got our exam results, when we even get married. It's a long-lasting joy. We can keep that joy even when the things of this life cause us pain or worry. I wonder if you feel sometimes a little in awe of Mary and think of her as this perfect person who can do no wrong. Um, Maybe you think it's fine for her to be rejoicing, um, but, you know, she hasn't really experienced life yet. Whereas I've got so many worries and and problems to, to deal with. Well, actually, Mary is about to face a very difficult situation, isn't she? She's engaged to be married. She has to explain to her fiancé that she's pregnant. She faces the possibility of that engagement being broken off and and the possibility of um, uh, public disgrace. But we don't see any of that worry here in this song, do we? What we see is an intense joy that overcomes any worry about what people will think or what might happen to her. Any worry that her future life may be really tough because she knows she's been blessed by God. And one of the most powerful ways in which we can witness for God is when life is not going well. When we don't get the things we want, when things don't go the way we want them to, and yet we still remain joyful. And by that, I mean, we don't just put on a happy face and pretend everything's fine. But that underneath the hurt... And the pain, people can see an inner peace and contentment and a trust in the faithfulness of God. People see that those things that we have lost were important to us and still are. But we didn't rely on them for our joy. We didn't put them in place of God. But the sad thing is that it's often not the big trials of life that um, cause us to lose our joy. 
It's often the, the everyday mundane things that we get so worked up about. Last week, Mark gave us um, a gentle rebuke uh, to those who come to church late. Um, and that wasn't just because it's a bit annoying when people come in and when everybody else has uh, started. Um, but that's out of a concern for everyone here that you will get the most out of your time with God and with others, that you will be blessed as you come to church. My normal um, Sunday routine is to, to get up early, um, to, to pray, to go over my sermon and the service, um, and to arrive at church in time to pray with others in the, in the hall out the back before the service starts. Now, the first uh, Sunday I came to church after my brother died, I got up late, I didn't pray. I came in just before the service started, sat at the back. Um, and I felt much less engaged with God. And you may say, well, of course, because of the emotional state you were in. But um, yes, that has something to do with it inevitably. But it also highlights the fact that unless we prepare ourselves to meet with God and his people, unless we ask to be blessed when we come to meet with him and to be a blessing to others, it's highly likely that we will leave here joyless, and maybe just annoyed that the preacher went on too long, or the hymn was the wrong tune, or the heating wasn't working. Do you think Mary would be bothered by any of that stuff? How do we stop ourselves being um, worked up by such things and uh, becoming quite joyless? We do that by magnifying God. The bigger God becomes to us, the smaller and less significant all those other issues become. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. And the interesting thing is that glorifying God leads to rejoicing in God. But as we rejoice in God, we also glorify him. We also trust in him more. And so it becomes a sort of circular thing that's going on here. We glorify God. That leads to rejoicing that leads to trusting. And as we do that, we are glorifying God. If we rejoice in what God has done for us, that he saved us even though we didn't deserve it, then we will grow in our faith in him and he will be more glorified. Because our joy in God demonstrates his sufficiency, it demonstrates his goodness, his mercy and his loving kindness. Our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him. Well, I said earlier that people have minimized the, the greatness of God um, so that as humans we can somehow comprehend him. And so you'll hear people ask questions like, well, well, why does God need to be worshipped? As if he's somehow fishing for, for compliments or, uh, or flattery. Now, people like flattery, human beings like flattery because it inflates their view of themselves to something greater than it really is. God doesn't need that because uh, people's view of God cannot be greater than, the, than he really is. He's more concerned with people understanding and knowing him as he really is in all his greatness. And if our perception of God's greatness has been shrunk so he appears like a tiny little star in the sky, then who is going to restore his greatness as it should be? Who is God going to choose to restore his greatness as it should be? Is it going to be those who have an inflated view of themselves? Well, look at what God's response to them is. Have a look at verse 51. He has scattered those 
who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Those who are proud in the sense of being independent, self-sufficient, um, self-confident, who say, I don't need anybody's help, thank you very much. I am okay. Or verse 52, he says, he's brought down rulers from their thrones. Those who are proud because they have power. It may be political power, it may be power in a particular business or organisation. There are all sorts of different ways of exerting power. People thinking they've got there through their own effort. Or verse 53, have a look at that. He has sent the rich away empty. Again, those who are proud because they're wealthy and think their money can get them anything they want. Why does God not choose such people when they're supposedly the best that humankind can offer? Because they're the ones who are more interested in them making themselves look good. They're more interested in showing that they don't actually need God. And so instead, God chooses the humble. He blesses the humble. The birth of Jesus was the greatest event to have happened in human history. And who does God choose for this to happen? He chooses an insignificant girl who has no social standing, no wealth, no experience. There's nothing special about Mary. And she knows that. She doesn't kid herself that she somehow deserves this. But there is something about her that God delights in. That's her humility and her faith. Yeah, she's heard this incredible message from the, from the angel Gabriel. She's had her question answered. And what does she say in verse 38 that we looked at last week? I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And here today she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why, she says, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And she's not saying here, he's only chosen me because I'm humble. Look at me, how good I am. I'm humble in character. No, she's saying that the Lord has been mindful of the fact that I have nothing to offer. My soul glorifies, magnifies the Lord. Mary wants to make the Lord great and herself less. That is exactly the role that Elizabeth's child, John the Baptist, um, was to be given. And we remember that earlier on, didn't we, with the lighting of the candles. John started his ministry to prepare the way for Jesus. And when Jesus did appear on the scene later on, John's disciples came to him and said, um, have you heard what's going on? Everybody's going to Jesus. So everybody's going to the church down the road. What are we going to do about it? And what does John say? He must become greater I must become less. It's a hard thing to say because it goes against our natural tendency to, to big ourselves up, to make ourselves appear greater than we really are, for people to look, look at us well. When Mary says in verse 48, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's not saying look at me because she goes on to say, for the mighty one, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. It's not about me, she's saying. It's all about him. Any blessing I receive has nothing to do with me. I don't deserve any of this. And if you count the number of times she mentions herself, it is three. Seventeen times she mentions God. He's mighty. 
He is holy. He is merciful. He's so very different from me. I want others to know just how great he is. And so we're not supposed to worship Mary. She was a humble servant, a great inspiration, a great example in terms of humility and servanthood, but not an object of worship. And she knew that, and she'd be mortified today, I think, if she were here and saw how she is worshipped by some people. God blesses Mary because she trusts him and wants to glorify him. And it's that humble trust that God is looking for, not just in Mary, but in all his people. God blesses all those who demonstrate a trust in him, who know their place before God. As Mary says in verse 40, verse 50, sorry, his mercy extends to all who fear him. The humble will be blessed through their enjoyment of God. But the passage also tells us that uh, God blesses the humble in other ways. Have a look at verse 52. It says he's lifted up the humble. What does that mean? God has lifted up the humble. We find the same promise on in uh, chapter 14 and chapter 18 where it says, He who humbles himself shall be exalted. What does that mean? Is it just that when we die, we receive our reward in heaven? Or will we be lifted up in this life? And what about the, the next verses? It says, He has filled the hungry with good things, by which is meant a spiritual hunger or thirst. What both of these verses have in common, talking about the humble and the hungry, is an acceptance that we have nothing to offer God. We cannot fill ourselves. And the first step in humbling ourselves is acknowledging that in our own strength, we are nothing. The trouble is, of course, that even if we have acknowledged our need for God, our need for his mercy, if we have put our trust in Jesus, we're still not immune from pride, are we? Pride, as we've said, is trusting one's own ability and refusing to acknowledge the need for God. I've recommended a book to you before by um, Tim Keller, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, it's called, and um, the subtitle is The Path to True Christian Joy. And in it he quotes um, C.S. Lewis, who describes pride in this way. It says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Pride is about comparing ourselves with others, isn't it, and seeing just how we, we stack up. Of course, the trouble is most of us um, know we don't stack up well against others. There are always plenty of people better um, than us at doing what we do. So instead of pride, many people actually become gripped by anxiety or depression. And Mary's response here is quite different, isn't it? She's not at all proud. She, She knows she's insignificant. But she's not gripped by fear or worry that she's not good enough. But this task that God has given her, she won't be able to to somehow do. So what is it that frees her from that worry? 
was that, that she's so focused on God and his goodness towards her that she doesn't need to think about herself. She recognizes that if God accepts her as she is, if God gives her this task to do, then why does she need to worry about whether she'll be able to do it or how people will look at her? The Apostle Paul recognized this as well. He was uh, subject to a lot of slander, a lot of misunderstanding. And so in his letter to the, the Corinthians, this is what he wrote. He said, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. It is the Lord who judges me. We all, I think, deep down worry about um, what people think of us. And uh, we can try and overcome that by making ourselves better or appear better. We can convince ourselves that we are okay. After all, compared to others, we're not that bad. So somehow we manage to clear our consciences and, and not feel guilty. Paul said, I have a clear conscience, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges. And this is the really good news because none of us is innocent. We all deserve to be punished for seeking our glory rather than God's glory, for magnifying ourselves instead of God, for making ourselves look good in the eyes of others rather than making God look good. But Jesus came to take the punishment for that. And so we are declared innocent if we put our trust in him. And that is why those words of Romans we looked at recently are so freeing and liberating for us, where it says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And that freedom in Christ means we can forget about ourselves. We don't need to worry about our human failures, our lack of gifting, what people think about us, because in the eyes of God, we are precious. And if you're a visitor here this morning, and this is all, all new to you, but you're wondering, actually, that freedom in Christ that I want, how do I enjoy that? It's actually quite simple. It means admitting that we've been living our life focusing on ourselves and not on God. It means saying sorry to him and asking for his forgiveness. It means trusting in Jesus that he made it possible for us to be forgiven as he took the punishment for us. And it means promising to put Jesus first in your life and asking for his strength to be able to do that. It's very simple. And there's wonderful enjoyment that comes with, with that. As the psalmist wrote, you've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Well, if you have already done that, if you've experienced that freedom, but um, maybe you've lost a bit of the joy in your life. Remember God's promise that he who humbles himself shall be exalted. As Tim Keller says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. And the way we think of ourselves less is to think of God more, to magnify him. And we magnify God by recognizing his goodness, his love, his kindness, by acknowledging that we are dependent on him for everything and trusting he will give us all that we need. Never be complacent in your view of God.
He's always greater than our view of him now. We can glorify God in our souls. We can rejoice in our spirit. But as we speak it out, as we sing it out, his greatness does become more real to us. So can I encourage you to to do that, to speak it out, to pray it out. Um, If you've never prayed out loud, can I encourage you to do that? Because it takes what you feel and makes it more real. If you feel self-conscious about doing that, well, do it when you're on your own. Maybe in the car, in the shower, or wherever, um, you're alone. Do it in a safe environment where you're with maybe one or two other Christian friends. Do it in your home group. It's a safe place to do that. Come and do it in a prayer meeting. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour.